Are there any laws or rules that you really take more as suggestions? <laughs> like the speed limit, maybe. We all know the speed limit is there for a good reason. But it's easy when we're driving to look around and say, nobody's going 55 on this road. This law shouldn't apply. Right? I'm just following the flow of traffic. I don't have to feel bad about that. Uh, it's, it's more of a suggestion than it is a law. So at least that's what we can tell ourselves. Or we're getting close to Halloween, so it's, it's possible that you're going to come across a bowl of candy somewhere with a little sign next to it that says, please take one. Now, is that a law or a suggestion? And maybe for you, it just depends on what's in the bowl. I mean, are we talking about Whoppers or Reese's Cups? Because if it's Reese's, you know, I, I typically black out and forget how many Reese's I've eaten. Uh, it's a problem that I have, um, especially this time of year. You know, everybody's prone to this. We will redefine rules or standards to fit what we want to do. Or we'll find a way to justify our bending of the rules. And how this law, this standard, it, it doesn't really apply to me. Or it doesn't apply in this situation, somehow. Now, if we're talking about an extra piece of candy... Well, nobody's going to kick up a fuss over that. But the truth is, this is a temptation we often face in our relationship with God. Y'all, oftentimes when I read my Bible, I have this, this inner monologue, this voice that I speak to myself. And sadly, there are times when I want to say to myself, well, surely Jesus didn't mean that literally. Surely God doesn't expect me to live like that all the time. Uh, this, this command, this command must have been, you know, only for the olden times. There's no way that we could live like that now. And see, this is, it's actually a very easy thing to do, to take a clear teaching from the scripture, and instead of meeting the standard, I change the standard to meet me. And see, this is what's happening in Luke chapter 16, as Jesus teaches on the issue of money. Jesus, and I, and I would encourage you to read through the whole chapter of Luke 16, but uh, Jesus is, is giving uh, instructions, parables, commands concerning money, wealth, the love of money. Uh, and the tipping point really comes close to the middle of the chapter. So I want you to look with me at Luke 16, verse 13. These are the words of Jesus. Uh, very, very famous. In fact, we find this in, in more than one of the Gospels here. Uh, this comes in the Sermon on the Mount as well. But Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You're going to have to choose. If you want to love God and wealth, uh, your heart is going to incline to one in in favor of, over and against the other. And, the, and Jesus' implication here is, if you love God and money, money's going to win. Now the Pharisees, look at this, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. 
For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. All right, now, we've, we've talked about this in the past, how money, money itself is a neutral thing. It's not good or bad. It's just a thing. But the love of money, Jesus says, is a deadly poison. The Apostle Paul says the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. The love of wealth, possessions, accumulation, money, that love will corrupt our hearts and drive us away from God. Well, the Pharisees, as they're listening to Jesus say this, they're having a good laugh. They're scoffing. They're not taking him seriously. They probably thought, well, Jesus is just jealous. He's this poor preacher. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus said earlier in Luke, Jesus often was homeless. He was poor. That's one of the great purposes for which he came. He humbled himself and became a bondservant. And I'm sure the Pharisees are thinking, well, he's just jealous of us because we're well off. We're doing fine. God favors us, clearly. Look at our material wealth. And Jesus is just you know, bitter about it. That's why he's preaching against money. But y'all, here the Lord stands and sets the standard. And this is not one of those things we can, we can wiggle out of. Jesus says, what is highly esteemed among men, that is to say, whatever people idolize and worship, whatever people make ultimate, God detests. God despises. Because God alone is worthy of worship. When we esteem something, wealth or anything else, when we esteem something as equal to or greater than God, God uh, finds it detestable. That's just that's that's the nature of um, what we call worship or devotion. We all worship something. Jesus says, if you try to worship something alongside God, or in addition to God, that thing is going to choke God out of the picture and you're going to become corrupt. See, the Pharisees are scoffing because they thought they had their standard figured out just fine. They thought they could have it both ways. They had, they had changed the standard to meet them. And Jesus says, no, it just doesn't work that way. And then a few verses later, Jesus gives a parable to bring this truth home. Our parable for today, this is probably Jesus' most vivid parable. It's also possibly his most difficult, most troubling parable, and it won't be hard to see why. We're going to read the thing all at once, uh, just so that we can see the big picture all together. Then we'll work through it to, uh, to get a, a clearer idea of what Jesus is saying to us. So this is Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. He says to these Pharisees, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, 
he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, there's a lot going on here, for sure. But let's, let's start by remembering that this is a parable. It's not a true story. It's an illustration Jesus creates to show us something about true spiritual reality. And so, you might be wondering, can people in heaven really see the people in hell and have conversations with them? No, it, this is a technique Jesus uses to drive home his point. And so let's just, let's revisit the parable and, and get, a, I hope, a clearer sense of what Jesus is communicating here. At first, Jesus presents an exceedingly wealthy man. He's so rich that he dresses in purple every day. Now, purple was the most expensive dye you could find something that only wealthy people could afford in the first place. But if you had an entire wardrobe full of purple, not just one or two nice outfits for special occasions, but, but purple and fine linen every day, you're not just rich, you're ostentatious. This man is flaunting his wealth every chance he gets. And he joyously lived in splendor every day. That carries the idea that he was feasting all the time, fulfilling all of his desires. Again, not periodic feasts, but constant. Uh, Jesus says this man had a gate. Now that may seem like a useless detail, but the fact that he had a gate around his house meant that he was basically royalty. I mean, that's how well off this man is. Nobody had a gate in those kinds of communities back then. He was rich. Well, and then at some point, the rich man dies. And he's buried. And I'm sure he had a very lavish funeral. Back then, they paid people to weep at your funeral if you, were, if you were wealthy enough to make a big show about how great you were and how much you're missed. I'm sure he had many weepers uh, who were uh, paid to be there to um, lament his passing. He's, he, he, he dies and he's buried. But there's a second person in this story. Jesus introduces a very poor man named Lazarus, who was laid at the rich man's gate, covered with sores. 
Y'all, Lazarus is a name that means God helps. That's what the name means, God helps. And yet here this man is, he's penniless, he's sick, he's starving. No one gave him anything, certainly not the rich man. And the only care that he received came from the scavenging dogs who would come and lick his sores. Jesus paints about as sad a picture as you can for this poor man, Lazarus. Then Lazarus dies. And this is where Jesus flips the story. Both men live and then die. And here's where the story makes a dramatic turn. We, We spoke about this a few weeks ago. How ancient people viewed blessings and curses and really, they, they weren't all that different from us and, and how we view the world. The assumption was a good life comes to you as a reward. A bad life must be some kind of punishment. So in this case, the rich man was rich because clearly God's favor was upon him. He must have been good. He must have deserved his good things. And there's no telling what horrible things Lazarus must have done to deserve such a sad fate. Surely if he was that bad off, God was giving him what he really deserved. Um, There's always a direct correlation. Good people get good things, bad people get bad things. That was the belief. And a lot of us carry that same idea around with us day by day. But then look at verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So at death, the rich man finds himself impoverished, in torment. And Lazarus finds himself exceedingly wealthy. He's carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, I know that sounds weird. But what it means is, at the great heavenly feast, Lazarus is seated right next to Father Abraham. That is a place of great honor and distinction and comfort. Now, especially given the the understanding of blessing and curse of good and bad, How do we explain such a dramatic reversal here? Well, remember the point that Jesus is illustrating. What people highly esteem, what people idolize and worship, is detestable to God. What so often people value, God does not value. In fact, God uh, casts out. And so the rich man loved money. He loved himself. He loved pleasure. But clearly, the rich man did not love God. He did not love, nor did he help, the poor. He lived what for him was a joyous, lavish life, but he lived what for God was a detestable existence. And so in the end, it is Lazarus who is joyously living in splendor, and the rich man is in agony. He's become the beggar. He's begging now for help. And so we begin now, now that we've established the context, the the, the basis of the story, now Jesus begins 
this fascinating conversation. Between the rich man and Abraham, you notice Lazarus, even though he's such an important part of the story, Lazarus never says a word. The rich man, in torment, speaks to Father Abraham. He appeals to Abraham. And here's where we really get insight into the rich man's heart. Look at what happens here. Verse 24. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, you see how tender Abraham is here? Even with this, you know, man who's, who's rejected God, he's getting what he deserves. Abraham is so kind. Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and, the, and, and none may cross over from there to us. Notice the hardness of the rich man's heart. Even on the other side of the grave, even as he is in torment, surely he he would become more self-aware on the other side as he's experiencing the bad fruit of the life he chose. But no, look at the hardness of his heart. Never once in this parable does this man repent. Never does he apologize to Lazarus for neglecting him and letting him starve. And strangely, the rich man never asks to get out of hell. It's it's as if he doesn't really want to get out. He just wants Lazarus in. He, He says, send Lazarus in here to serve me. And y'all, what what Jesus is showing us is that even as this man suffers in torment for his sin, he still sees Lazarus as beneath him. Tell him to come serve me. Tell him to come help me. And Abraham says, no, that's not how this works. Okay, plan B. Verse 27. He said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, there's a lot more nobility in this request, right? He's thinking about someone else. He's thinking about his brothers. But once again, you see what he's doing? He's telling Abraham, send Lazarus on an errand for me. He still wants Lazarus to serve him, to do his bidding. This time, send him to warn my brothers so that they won't end up like me. I don't want them to end up here as well. Now, Notice what this rich man is implying here. If God had given me more revelation, then I wouldn't have ended up here. Please go and give my brothers the information that I didn't have so that they won't end up like me. You know, it's not really my fault that I'm in here. Make sure they get the information that was somehow hidden from my eyes, as if this is God's fault. Now, 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, 
they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. That's the end of the parable. And you see what, what Abraham, Abraham's making, what, what for us might be fairly shocking. He says they have God's word. In this case, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament. They have God's word. They have the same Bible that you had, rich man. The word that reveals to us who God is in all his righteousness, in his love and mercy and goodness and justice, all of it's in there. The word that brings us to faith in God and brings us to love of our neighbor. They've got that. That's all they need. But no, the, the, the man says, that's not enough. Send them a bona fide miracle. Then they'll change. Now, at this point, we might wish to object. Okay, surely an undeniable miracle would change people's minds and turn them to God. Right? If, if God would just do stuff like he used to do, then, man, wouldn't it be obvious? People wouldn't have to have faith. They would just see it right in front of them. But y'all, think about the fact. We don't even know how many miracles Jesus performed. At least dozens, maybe hundreds. Um, and yet Jesus was routinely rejected, wasn't he? Nobody performed more miracles, more obvious miracles, more gracious miracles than Jesus, healing the sick, casting out demons, providing food for the hungry. And yet people routinely turn their backs on him even after seeing and benefiting from those same miracles. The Pharisees even had the gall to say, Jesus, you perform miracles by the power of Satan. You're not really from God. These are just Satan's magic tricks. <laughs> and y'all, here's the point. A heart that is hardened against God will explain anything away, even miracles. And that's Abraham's point. Even if I send Lazarus back from the dead, it won't change their hearts because they're hardened against God. They will not believe God's word. They will not worship God for who he is. What's a miracle going to do? Now, there's a lot happening in this parable, obviously. But what's the main point? What does Jesus want to drive home? You know, this is a story of a person who idolized wealth to the neglect of God and the neglect of others. This is an illustration of a man who did exactly what Jesus said. He tried to serve a master other than God. And in that, he came to love money and despise the other. He despised God. He despised people. He served an idol that corrupted his heart. Rather than living in gratitude to God, because everything's really a gift, all this man's wealth was a gift from God, but the man was not grateful. Rather than living in generosity to the poor and using his resources to love and bless his fellow man, no, he lived only for himself. Now, you and I may look at this parable, look at this rich man, and, and say, well, I'm nothing like that. That would never happen to me. But here we need to remember Jesus' warning, what we looked at right before the parable. Jesus says, you seek to justify yourselves 
but God knows your heart. We human beings, we, we are always seeking to justify ourselves, always changing the standard to meet me rather than changing me to meet the standard, right? That's always a temptation in our heart. And so if there is the love of money in your heart, even just a little bit, then only two things can happen. If the love of money is in me, either by God's grace, it gets rooted out as I devote myself to God, or the love of money becomes a growing vine that slowly chokes out my love for God. One master will prevail, Jesus says. And so practically, we the church should take from this parable a renewed love for the Lazaruses. One of the ways we know that money does not control us, that money doesn't have a grip on our hearts, is that we are continually thinking about uh, strategizing for how we can love, bless, and honor the poor, those who can't pay us back, those that, that, uh, that cannot return the favor. Because then we're opening our hands instead of closing our fists. And so when we think about the poor, the hungry, the sick, the widow, the orphan, one of the clear indicators of our devotion to God is that our heart is inclined to them. God identifies with these kinds of people. God lowers himself to nourish and bless, to care for and esteem the poor. It's just the way God is. All throughout the Bible, this is how God acts. And so, y'all, it's, it's very easy for us to become accumulators just by default, we are earners and savers and spenders. And in that, we might neglect God's clear and abundant heart for the poor. And so it, it, I think it's helpful and, and frankly sobering to ask ourselves some practical questions on this. Do we have prioritized in our budgets a place for generosity? that I'm generous by default. It's part of how we budget every month, every week. It doesn't just happen by accident, but it's fundamental to how we think about what we have. Do we pray for the needy and then seek opportunity to meet their needs in love? Is that on our radar? Or is it possible that we've cushioned ourselves so that we can remain comfortable right where we are? Now, as I'm asking those questions, y'all, this is a long, hard look in the mirror for me. As I prepared this message, oh my goodness sakes, uh, deep, a deep place of conviction for me. Um, God's great love and concern for the poor is the standard. It's not a suggestion. Love for the poor is the standard not a suggestion. A gracious and generous church is the rule, not the exception. There should be no such thing as a church, a people of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are accumulators um, rather than gracious, generous lovers of those in need. And so how do we grow? I mean, how, how do we if there's conviction, 
in your heart, just like I know there is in mine, how do we change? How do we grow? Well, y'all, it's not through guilt. And if you're feeling guilty right now, that's just part of being human. God, God made us that way. But we have, to, we have to, to recognize that guilt is a temporary motivator that cannot change the heart. Guilt will get you moving. Guilt will, will, will get, get your hands and feet uh, in, into action. But guilt will not actually change your heart. It will not last. And it does not truly honor God all by itself. No. We only become truly selfish, truly generous people through grace. Not guilt, but grace. Y'all, I want you to consider in this parable the rich man who sits in torment and agony because he rejected God in favor of himself. He rejected the good that he was meant to do for others in favor of himself. Y'all, this is the fate of every person unless God mercifully intervenes. Every person is lost in sin. Every person is deserving of condemnation, of torment. We don't like to think of ourselves that way, but that's the truth. That's what the Scripture declares without apology, without reservation. But this is what the Gospel declares, that God has intervened to change our standing, our status, our problem. That God sent His own Son into the world to bear our sins for us. Which means Jesus Jesus took upon Himself the penalty and the condemnation for sin. All of the agony and torment I deserve was placed on Christ instead. The pain of the cross was not so much in the nails and the crown of thorns. That physical pain is is unimaginable for us. And yet for Jesus, it was a pinprick compared to the pain of enduring our agony, paying for our sin, being punished, being condemned for what we had done. Y'all, what this means is that Jesus, he didn't just abstractly forgive us, wink at us and say, it's all, it's all good. No, he paid for our sin. Jesus took our hell into his own heart on that cross in order to forgive you and me, in order to save us. By faith in His name, we receive that gift, the agony, the condemnation, the torment, all that we had built up for ourselves in our rebellion against God. Jesus took it for us so that we might receive mercy, not condemnation. And this is why when the Apostle Paul calls Christians to be generous, I love this, this scripture from 2 Corinthians 8. When Paul tells Christians to be generous, here is the appeal. Listen to what he says. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, you might become rich. The Son of God took on our 
poverty, our sin debt, so that we could be rich in him. John Flavel, uh, years and years ago, he wrote this. He wrote it from the perspective of Jesus, as if Jesus were saying it. And listen to what, listen to what Jesus says as Flavel imagines it. It's so beautiful. Jesus says, charge it all to me. I'm able to pay their debt. And though it will undo me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my accounts, yet I am content to undertake it. Jesus entered into poverty. He entered into our sin debt that he might make us rich in grace. It's unreal. And y'all, that, that, that's, but, but that's what makes us truly different in this area. Y'all, if, if our God is that generous, if our Savior is that selfless, what else could we become but self-giving people? How else could a Christian be defined? If this is what we believe, if this is the Savior we follow as His disciples, if this is the grace that we've been given, what else could we become but loving, self-giving people? Y'all, true, great generosity does not begin in my heart. It does not begin with you and I feeling guilty because we haven't done enough and we ought to do more. It does not begin there. True generosity began long ago in the heart of God. It's who He is. And so to those who have received the generous gift of God, to those of us who have received His Son, therefore we've received grace upon grace. Now may we cheerfully expend ourselves in love for others. To those who have received such generosity, It only makes sense now that God would produce in us a generosity in like manner to return to God all our thanks and praise for every good thing we have and to spend the good things He's given us for the good of those whom He loves, our brothers and sisters, our neighbors. What an awesome opportunity the gospel affords us. Let's pray. Father, I pray this this morning for us that you would just genuinely, right now, convict us, convict me. There is the love of money in my heart. Perhaps and hopefully it's it's not as much as it was. It's not what it used to be. I hope that's true. But I know it's there. And therefore, there's a constant pull. A pull, Lord, toward wealth, toward the concerns of, of the material and temporary, and away from you, and what's good and right and eternal. And so, Father, I'm always, I'm always um, potentially neglecting gratitude, humility. I'm always potentially neglecting the needs around me, and an open-handed generosity. Father, if we love money, then we're going to hold on tightly to what we can accumulate, and we're going to miss your heart. And Father, I pray that this, that this parable would set us straight. Um, that, Lord, there's a great reversal 
that you perform. The, the one who suffered, the one who had nothing, nothing apparently but faith, Lazarus. He was living in joyous splendor. He was feasting. He was clothed in glory, while the other was not. Um, and so, Father, I pray that this is the, the, the goal for us this morning is not to be scared, not not to not that that guilt would overtake us and and create temporary change, but Lord, that we would see what you truly value. Lord, the things that we tend to worship, the things that we tend to esteem, Lord, you detest. And so bring this reversal to our hearts. Make us, Father, a people who are truly generous, uh, truly loving and considerate uh, toward the needy, the people that you identify with and care for. Um, not just out of pity, but, Lord, that we would sincerely uh, see everyone as made in your image, everyone as valuable, everyone as worthy of, uh, of, of honor, not just charity. Uh, because, Father, you have saved us. You came to us in our poverty, and to, you took our place through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might receive your riches forever. Lord, make us generous people in kind. Uh, show us this week, very practically, the Lazaruses in our midst. Lord, don't let us, as Christians, don't let us just look the other way, lock our car doors, pretend uh, that we don't see, that we don't notice, that we don't care. But Lord, give us opportunities this week and give us the courage and the grace um, uh, to love others as you love. As you love them and as you've loved us, Lord. You've been so very generous to us. Make us generous to others. In Christ's name, amen.